this is for professional and institutional clients only. The statistic that really stands out is that even though we touch 33% of the total freight ton miles, we only create 2% of the total greenhouse gas emissions. So if you look at it by every account, cost, efficiency, carbon footprint, railroads play a significant role in every aspect of performance and competitiveness. Welcome to the Igneo Infrastructure Partners podcast, Keeping It Real Assets. In this series, you will hear from the Igneo investment team in conversation with the leaders of our global infrastructure businesses. We will shine a light on how they operate and their approach to the challenges of an ever-changing world. We hope that you enjoy listening. Hello and welcome to this episode of Keeping It Real Assets. My name is John Ma, and I am a partner and co-head of North America at Igneo Infrastructure Partners. Today, I am pleased to welcome John Fenton, CEO of Patriot Rail, Igneo's operator of shortline railroads across the United States, with 32 shortline railroads operating in 23 states. We will discuss the U.S. shortline rail industry and the key issues expected to influence the sector going forward. John, welcome to Keeping It Real Assets, and thank you for joining us today little bit about my background. I started my career working on the ground as a switchman back in 1979 at the Crane Naval Base. And what was unique about that, we moved ordnance. So it was very important, first of all, that you didn't have any issues with that when you're hauling bombs around. It gives you a very proper perspective about what you're doing. I've been CEO of Patriot now for 11 years. And John, with that, could you tell us what is a short-line railroad and how it's defined for those unfamiliar with the sector? Well, first of all, it really doesn't have anything to do with the number of miles operated. What it has to do with is the amount of revenue. The baseline to become a Class 1 railroad, and this is by individual rail line, is $900 million of revenue. So it starts with the amount of revenue earned. You've seen the consolidation of the rail industry down to where today there's only six Class 1 railroads that generate much more than $900 million of revenue. If you look at it today, the short lines operate about 50,000 miles of track. That's nearly 40% of the national rail network, and they operate in 49 of the 50 states. If you look at the amount of volume that we handle It's a range of anywhere from 25% of all cars go through the short line. It varies by Class 1 railroads. Some Class 1 railroads have up to 33%. We have preserved the service in a lot of these smaller towns, rural America. We really handle the first and last mile. Think of us more as the first and last mile people. Think of the short line industry as a feeder system for the National Freight Network. The Staggers Act came in in 1980, deregulated the rail industry, and I like to think at that point, it's really what saved the rail industry. I understand that there's approximately 600 individual short-line railroads in the U.S. right now. Is that right? And why are there so many of the short lines out there? That's a very accurate number. At one time, the railroads were incentivized to build. There was land-grant railroads, 
If you think about the role that railroads played in the development, the history of the United States, I mean, they were a key driver and they were also incentivized to build. So they basically had overbuilt a lot of the rail lines. So there was a lot of lines that were either abandoned or were not seen as valuable assets. So there was a lot of spinning off of these rural railroads and that's where they came from. It was a major time of concentrating the core assets, spinning off these lines that did not at the time seem to make sense. They basically came to a lot of entrepreneurs who looked at it and were pretty creative in how they developed these lines over a period of time. Patriot's a very professionalized short line rail holding company, but can you talk about within the short line industry, what the ownership structure among lots of these individual railroads is like now? I understand it's a lot of private ownership, as you mentioned. Yeah, I think that's one of the real advantages for us as a company. I mean, if you look at it today, there's only a handful of what I would consider professionally operated rail companies. So if you look at the number of privately held railroads, that is the bulk of what's still left out there. There's still a lot of individual ownership of lines. You've started to see the consolidation of the industry. I still think there's a runway for that to take place. As more and more professionalization of these assets, which is occurring, is good for the industry, is good for the shippers, it's good for the country. What has driven growth in the rail sector overall in recent years and the short line sector in particular? Really focusing on what we do well. I mean, railroads move big, bulky, heavy, hazardous material better than anybody. That is a core strength of the rail network. Then if you just look at the congestion in this country and the growth in this country, you see that most of our interstates are congested. I firmly believe that the railroads have to step up and play a bigger role in the future movement of freight in our country for a number of reasons, whether it's from an emission standpoint, whether it's from an efficiency standpoint. There's a lot of reasons why the railroads are going to continue to grow, need to grow, and play a bigger part in our country's mission of what we're trying to accomplish from a policy standpoint. We run 32 individual markets. Everyone is different. Everyone has different opportunities. They have a whole different set of circumstances. And so what we're trying to do is to maximize what we do with our shippers. We are ingrained there with them locally. You know, we really get to know our customers. We come up with customized solutions. Our job is to help them grow, to help them successfully navigate, to help them understand how we help them to do the things that will help minimize their costs and ease of doing business in the rail industry. So I think that's the biggest benefit that we bring where the class ones are more focused on operating the efficiencies of their core network. These are very busy assets and they don't like a lot of congestion out on those main lines. So we're in a tremendous position to take advantage of where the class ones are going, which is stepping on and off, moving freight from point A to point B, and we can become the growth engine of the industry, which we are today. Short lines are the fastest growing volume creator in the whole rail industry. Class ones are focused on running long distances, and if you look again at where they are, when I started back in 1982, there was over 50 Class 1 railroads. Today, there's six. 
So there's a greater concentration of class one railroads than there's ever been in the history of the industry. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I think a lot of that's going to be determined, but I think it's very good for the short line world. And I think customers are understanding more and more benefits of working with a good professional short line service operator. And John, can you give some specific examples of what a short line does better in terms of service? So if you are a manufacturer or a factory located along a Patriot short line railroad, what does better service mean and how does it create value for the customer? I'm going to take a step back on that one for just a second, because I think we have to talk about the strategy and how we are building this company. After all these years of being in this industry, you really start to understand what good looks like. And what does good look like for a shipper? I mean, the one thing we tried to build this company on, and quite frankly, there's nobody that's ever approached building a short line holding company quite like we have. We've been very disciplined about those attributes that make short lines very competitive and compelling for our shippers. And the first thing is to have dual access. If you look at, if you're captive, what does dual access mean? I think that's the best thing as a short line we can offer shippers. If you're a brick and mortar company, which most of our shippers are, these are large manufacturing facilities, they're 40, 50 year investments. If you are captive on a class one railroad, the annual yearly cost increases, rate increases, average anywhere from 7 to 10%. If you are dual access serve, where you introduce competition, that drops to 2 to 3% per year. So we give the shippers options. We make the class ones compete. That's why I'm saying we're more like a shipper than we are a railroad, because we want to maximize the opportunity for the shipper to be able to expand their rail volume that they ship through better rates, better service. So that's the second part. Number one, we help with rates, competitiveness with class one railroads. And the second part is that we give a service that really fits their needs. What does that mean? A lot of class ones only serve shippers one to two times a week. We can service at some points we give switches twice a day, depending upon the circumstances. So, you know, we really focus on giving the customer that increased service, that increased touch, help them with equipment, help them with getting competitive options. And basically, we make our brand is service reliability and ease of doing business with. If you can make it easy to do business with, if you can give that great service reliability, that's our brand. And I think it's something that gives us a competitive advantage in the market is that our brand is continuing to grow as good service providers, very reliable, very easy to do business with, becoming good listeners and ensuring that we weigh in on that railroad expertise that they don't have access to. In the rail industry in the U.S. recently, safety has had a big focus. There have been some high profile accidents across the U.S. rail network. Can you talk a little bit about Patriot's focus on safety? I know it's a cardinal priority for you. If you can explain to the listeners how you think about safety and how Patriot approaches it. Well, the first thing, 
Safety is not a priority in this company. Safety is a value. Priorities change. That's one thing we focus on is it's not a priority. It is a value that is first and foremost how we think about operating the business. I've seen a lot of bad things in my railroad career. It's had a tremendous effect on me. Again, when I took over Metrolink after Chatsworth, that was one of the worst accidents in the history of the rail industry. It was a passenger train that had a head-on collision with the Union Pacific freight train, killed 26 people, a lot of terrible injuries that people will live with for the rest of their life. So you can see the impact of not having a major focus on keeping your employees safe. Now, the one thing I tell all my managers, if you don't care about people, you shouldn't be in this business because we have a lot of responsibility to ensure that they do go home safe. It's not a dangerous business, but it is a very unforgiving business. Now, when you're out there and you're moving this type of large equipment with all kinds of different commodities and chemicals, this is one area where you can never lose focus. And quite frankly, I think is one of our keys to success. The way we think about operations, and that's one of the things I think has helped me my entire career, is when I look at an operation, I look at it through the lens of a person doing the work. And I try to teach that to my managers. Look at the risk that's associated with the work that your people are doing. Give them the proper workplace, the proper training, the proper leadership, the proper resources. You cannot operate an efficient, well-run company if you're not good at safety. It just doesn't happen. And I think that's one of the biggest myths is that safety, productivity, efficiency, service don't all go together. But I will guarantee you, if you cannot operate safely and that your people really have to have an understanding that you care about them, you'll never achieve what you want to achieve from optimizing your company's performance. So it is just foundational to us. It is a major value that we start with every day. And we've had really good performance in safety. And, you know, it's not to say that bad things can't happen because you always have to have a chronic unease because we're dealing with human beings. And I think we can all admit we all have life happens and there's a lot of things we deal with externally. And so you have to be aware of what's going on with your employees. If they're having issues outside of work, it takes a tremendous amount of effort, but it's worth every bit of the effort that we put into it. And we start with listening sessions with our employees. We look at what they need to operate safely. We make sure they have it. We do a tremendous amount of training. Just last year, our transportation operations employees received over 5,000 hours of training. We start with it. Everything we do is intertwined with it. Our discipline policy is a just culture. We are very fair with our employees. We work very closely with our employees about how we think about that whole piece of it. But if you treat your employees properly and you give them that type of leadership, all the good things happen. And I think we have a really good culture in safety. And that's all I can ask. We really put a lot of effort into it. 
and our employees have embraced it. Our managers live it. Our company lives it. I think it's one of the real strengths of our organization. I want to turn now to talk about the outlook and the future for the rail industry in the U.S. And the first topic is rail has some significant emissions and efficiency advantages over trucking. I've heard it as three to four times less carbon per freight mile. Can you talk about that a little bit and what you think some of the opportunities for growth that might lead to for the rail industry? Railroads, just by the growth of population and the limited capacity on interstate systems, railroads have to move more freight. That three to four times less carbon per freight mile, let's talk a little bit to quantify that. And I think, first of all, if you look at a truck to rail car conversion, depending upon the commodity, it's either three trucks to one or four to one, approaching four to one. So for every rail car you see moving, you've taken anywhere from three to four trucks off the road, which is big. I mean, if you look at just the cost of maintaining our highway systems and our interstate systems, it's very expensive. From my time in public service, you really look at the problems that are faced with congestion and loss of productivity. And I've worked in some of the most congested areas in the country, Chicago, Houston, LA, and then even in my home state now, Florida, the Florida DOT spends approximately $1 million per mile of road operated in the state of Florida, and trucks do most of the damage. And then you look at the safety factor. Then you look at the greenhouse gas emissions. And I think it's great to say three to four less carbon per freight mile, but really what does that mean? And I think the statistic that really stands out is that even though we touch 33% of the total freight ton miles, we only create 2% of the total greenhouse gas emissions. So if you look at it by every account, cost, efficiency, carbon footprint, railroads play a significant role in every aspect of performance and competitiveness. Turning to electrification, can you talk about how that might impact the rail industry in the U.S. And just to set the scene for our listeners, the U.S. has a sprawling freight rail network across the entire continent, tens of thousands of miles through mountains and very long distances. So the system here is not electrified today. But can you talk about the outlook again and how it might impact the railroads? Well, we are on the cusp of a lot of transformative technology from cleaner fuels different ways of operating to lower that greenhouse gas emissions. Electrification may come from a different way of the way people think about it. You won't see the cantonary, the overhead electric wires. That's not going to happen. There will be battery electric locomotives. It's been really difficult in the class one freight world because of the duty cycles. And these locomotives are out there operating 24 hours on 24 hour cycles before they get in and get service. So the duty cycle doesn't work. Battery does work for short lines. We're actually looking at piloting a battery-powered locomotive here in the very near future. I think that technology fits very well with the duty cycles. You might see that in commuter lines. You'll see it in the short line side. And then the class ones are working on a whole other series of cleaner types of fuels that are going to grow dramatically and the options of what's going to take place. 
you're starting to see that shift in the research and the application. Every class one railroad has pilots going on. Most of them don't go into that electrification area, but you will see some parts of battery powered locomotives and you'll see class ones eventually end up on what will be the fuel of choice to eliminate those greenhouse gas emissions. And quite frankly, even the technology that's in there today with tier four locomotives, as that starts to transition, we're also going to see the impacts of that. So I think the railroads are positioned very well from the research that's being conducted. I think you'll see different approaches based upon, again, the duty cycles or what makes sense. You'll see a major transition to cleaner fuels in the next 10 years. That's all we have time for today. John Fenton, thank you so much for joining us and appreciate your time. Thank you for listening to Keeping It Real Assets, the Ignio Infrastructure Partners podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, you can listen to more by following Ignio Infrastructure Partners on your favorite podcast platform. If you'd like to find out more about Ignio Infrastructure Partners, you can visit our website at igneoip.com. This podcast series was produced by Mark Gardner at OX4 Sound Studio. This podcast is not a financial promotion and has been prepared for general information purposes only. It is not intended to be investment or financial advice and does not take into account the specific investment objectives, financial situation or needs of any particular person. References to specific securities should not be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell such securities. Investment vehicles managed by Igneo Infrastructure Partners are only available to institutional investors, professional investors, qualified investors and wholesale clients. They are not available to retail clients, the general public, private customers or any persons in any jurisdiction in which their distribution is not authorised. Igneo Infrastructure Partners is an unlisted infrastructure asset management business and is part of the First Sentier Investors Group. We communicate and conduct business through different legal entities in different locations. Please refer to the notes section of the podcast platform you use for more information on Igneo Infrastructure Partners in your region. For Singapore only, the podcast should be used in accordance with the applicable laws in Singapore. In Singapore, the podcast is issued by First Sentier Investors Singapore, whose company registration number is 196900420D. This advertisement or material has not been reviewed by the Monetary Authority of Singapore. First Sentier Investors registration number 53236800B and Igneo Infrastructure Partners registration number 53447928J are business divisions of First Sentier Investors Singapore.